0: You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for showing up and tuning in. Uh, Today I'm going to do a show and talk a little bit about the ancient aliens research that's going on. Uh, A lot of really good stuff has been... uh, being found out by some of the researchers i'm really excited about this whole project and i think it's going to be a pretty fruitful ministry i think a lot of people have a paradigm that is totally shaped by their belief in some aspect of what's taught in ancient aliens Um, i know people particularly who uh, have thrown away whatever semblance of faith in god that they've had just because they were sort of swindled by this uh uh, lie it's just a it's just a lie at the end of the day, but it's got a lot of aspects to it, and it plays on a lot of truth and it's a kind of a, a complicated thing uh to describe to somebody in one sense there's a lot of stuff as we'll look at today that is just totally wrong i mean there's just there's an objective truth they say one thing is true and it's clearly untrue but then there's a lot of odd stuff that needs to be dealt with in the past and they are playing on um the general public's and even general uh christianity's ignorance on some things like the weirdness of of Genesis 6 and and all that kind of stuff so so it seems that that's uh, a little bit of both and that's why I, I think this project is something that can be done really right by a bunch of people who are Um, committed to doing a good job and committed to doing it from this particular kind of niche paradigm that we all are familiar with here at the Revelations Radio Network, um, where we know some weird stuff is true, but we also are grounded firmly in Scripture and that what it says is ultimately uh, the truth and that there's no contradictions in it. And I think that it is really interesting what uh, I've been finding out personally. I've, I've been taking... Um, the subject of the Anunnaki, which is a maybe familiar concept to a lot of you out there um, who have trafficked in this kind of uh, stuff for a while. The Anunnaki are, is the name of the a, a particular group of Sumerian gods. The Sumerians were uh, the earliest civilization that uh, we know of. It's the first writings that are known is the, the Sumerian writings. And then their religion and belief system basically became the later Akkadian or Babylonian uh, belief systems uh, hundreds of years later with a lot of uh, tweaks and twists and changes and things like that. But it's basically the same thing. And So when I say Sumerian and Akkadian, know the difference between those two. Um, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about the Sumerian and the and Akkadian belief of the Anunnaki and other things is, of course, that they are talking about a lot of clearly biblical concepts. Um, the There are so many similarities to their things like the creation of the world or the creation of man or the flood or other similar things. And it's not just the Sumerians. That's the important thing for everybody to remember, that there's a flood story with eight people and some animals, and it was about judgment, and it was sent by God. All these things, uh, in some lesser degree or greater degree, is in like almost every culture. Uh, there was a great uh, episode of from uh, uh, From the Bunker, uh, with uh, with Derek Gilbert the other day had a guy on that, was, that said that more boldly than I'd heard it said. I mean, I've seen the flood myths, but he, I think he said almost every civilization minus like one or two, you know, or something to that effect. But uh, I've certainly seen, you know, the, the, the Chinese and the South American and, and, you know, completely different civilizations that obviously had no contact with one another all have a belief in eight people, got off a boat, with animals, you know, that was a judgment from God that destroyed the earth and, and some similar thing. And there's this great graph that I use in a, um, uh, a video that I did called the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Flood. Uh, something to that effect I did a while ago that shows the, the different levels of agreement that the different cultures have on this. And of course the, the idea is that the reason that all these cultures from all this time period knew about this stuff was because they remembered it. It was true. It really happened. From an anthropological perspective, regardless of where you stand on a global flood or whatever, you pretty much have to say everybody thought a global flood happened. That much is certain. Everybody told it like it was the truth that a global flood had happened. And the one thing I pointed out also in that early video I did about the flood and how all the cultures believed about the flood, or most of the cultures believed about the flood, was that the scholars and skeptical scholars at that recognized that there was no literary borrowing between them, and even between this one that's often accused? Because of course, if the Sumerians were the first writings that we know of, then clearly they predate, predate excuse me any um, any Hebrew writings. So the idea is, well, they wrote first, so they must uh, be accurate, but that's not what we get. Um, What you would expect is that a lot of cultures running parallel to one another uh, wrote about what, you know, about it from their perspective. What I wanted to say about that is that the scholars can look in a lot of different ways at what was written by them and what was written in the Hebrew text and say there was no literary borrowing. Um, That is to say that they can say conclusively that no, it's not as if the Hebrews just copied it from it. They came up with it independently. So, and that's not a big thing to sell when you realize that everybody seemed to come up with the same thing independently. Uh, so, that should be pretty easy to, to show to people. But I think it's important because I think what the Bible says is true, especially in like Romans chapter 1, where it says, Although they knew God, they worshipped Him not as God and they went away, you know, as, as it says, they went away into their various uh, uh, sins, they rebelled against God, uh, they, even though they knew Him. And when you see the ancient world, even in the bible there, there that starts to show up all the time. You start to see these these kings that are not supposed to know God, they know how to worship God. I was just thinking last night about uh you know Cain and Abel and their sacrifices and um and you know we're we're not told that they were told how to do that, or there's all kinds of stuff like how did what did Enoch know about God exactly and how did he how did these people know? to build altars and where did Melchizedek come from and and, and even if you think that's a a mystical Christophany or whatever I mean how did Abraham know to go to him and and how did he I mean there's just so much understanding of the ancient culture about God and about how God is and what he's like and what creation was like the ancient world knew about God but they chose to rebel against him and there's all this evidence that they knew specifics about it now as I'm going to talk about uh, the Sumerians here they have uh, uh, their belief in like uh, cre- the creation of man and and different things. They have so many elements that say, "Well, that's pretty close," you know. But they also have a lot of skewed stuff, stuff that clearly is is not uh, jiving with the Bible. And so the knee-jerk reaction is like, "Well, uh, that must be the true one because it's older." And so all these sort of details that are inconsistent with the Bible, they must be the ones that are true. But one thing that I plan on arguing in this uh, in this Uh, project is that that's not that's not logical to say that for a lot of reasons specifically you can watch as you study the sumerian literature that they completely change the story all the time they change the story based on you know which god they are that temple is you know all of a sudden the story will completely change and that god will do something you know that they're 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 the story is constantly morphing and changing just like you would expect it to if this game of telephone thing that people always accuse the bible of that's what you can like map and see clearly and especially by the time it got to the acadian version i mean it was just all all completely turned into a cult and and it, but you can see the difference of, of and watch the story morph right before your eyes um so there's no reason to think okay well that it it 's the truth there was no there was no skewing of the facts they didn't they must not have skewed it to suit their purposes or to uh, and all this stuff, but that 's exactly what you see happening with them. Um, the other thing that I would compare it and say what we 're looking for is which one of these ancient cultures got it right, and what kind of criteria can you use to say which one of these guys had the most clear picture of what actually happened and in that respect, of course, the Hebrew text never did change. There's no indication of change. There's no, you know, A good example is even the Isaiah scroll uh, showing that thousands of years of copying had copied it, I mean, in pristine, you know. Uh, we They were all worried, okay, you know, is this going to show that we've had this game of telephone for a thousand years since we now have these uh, scrolls? And they, they found out it matched up with the Masoretic text, like, perfectly, which means that their scribes we're serious about uh, about that stuff and and so that's one thing, but also the consistentity in there about the flood, for instance, uh, about how the in the flood story just goes to show you the kind of similarities that they have that the, the inatrahasis and the, the flood story in, in uh, the Sumerian uh, text it talks about you know um Uh, dimensions of the boat, you know, there's in this cubit should be so many cubits, and then do that, and the same thing we see in Genesis, you know, he talks about the cubits of the boat, and so you you get a sense that we're talking about a real similar thing, not only did God tell to make a boat and and everything, but he's going to be in these dimensions of the boat. Now, the dimensions of the boat in the Sumerian text is a big cube, and of course, would not be a very seaworthy vessel, to say the least, it would just, um, you can imagine what a big cube would do on, uh, weighted down with a bunch of animals on it. On on the sea, but the Bible as a uh, points to something that is so well engineered that modern naval engineers look at it and marvel. Uh, when you do a model of that and you think about the massive waves that it would take and the integrity of the ship, I mean it's a it's a pretty it's a it's a pretty amazing thing. Just the dimensions of the boat. I mean, sea sea worthy vessels would not get to that kind of level of of uh, um, and, and you know uh, engineering for to until the modern era and even then one could make an argument that that it was exactly what was needed for that unique situation in a global flood but nevertheless you get my point the consistent logic is is also a point in the bible's favor but i want to talk about some things today that um i didn't really understand the depth of the similarities between a lot of the things that they say and how important it is to know what the divine counsel is in the Bible, um, the Divine Council is all over the Bible in lots of different ways, and I've got a lot more to learn about it. So I'm just going to give a, a thumbnail on it. I've got uh, I've just recently purchased Heiser's book on it, and uh, I've been brushing up on it. But I've immediately recognized how important it is for me to to know what what this is as as I study this uh, this Sumerian group of gods, the Anunnaki, um, because that's the corresponding biblical figure in the Bible, the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki are the Divine Council. If you know, if you know, if you've never seen SitchinIsWrong.com dot com, and it, you understand kind of the basic idea of the ancient astronaut theory that ancient aliens promotes, um, which is basically comes from Zachariah Sitchin and also from Eric Von Daniken. That is basically that um, aliens in the ancient past genetically modified prehistoric man to make them intelligent so they could use them for slaves and that's who our gods are is really this uh this ancient group of aliens that wanted to use us for slaves uh and that's the main thing but there's lots and lots of so many problems with it but i want to to just show you an example of what i mean by this like um one of the things that ancient aliens gets wrong among well, they get everything wrong, but one of the things that they say about the Anunnaki is they say that the word, that the Anunnaki means those who from heaven to earth came. If you have any indication of who uh, of, of this stuff, you'll, you've heard that a million times. Those who from heaven to earth came. And they say something similar about the Nephilim. By the way, Sitchin says the Nephilim are the same thing as the Anunnaki. And we will dispel that myth in just a moment. But it doesn't at all mean that. It doesn't mean those who from heaven to earth came at all. But we're going to see how that they came to that conclusion. And it's interesting for our purposes here. Um, well, let me back up just a minute and talk about um, some more about the divine councils and the similarities here. For example, the Anunnaki were not a particularly uh, well-known group of gods they I mean they were well known, everybody knew about them, but they were never worshipped, even when the cult started forming uh, in the Akkadian uh, world and stuff like that. these were never deities that were like picked out and worshipped. they were always like kind of co-opted actually um, what you see i'll talk about what I mean by that in a minute, but they were a group of gods that had one job basically to judge people they were judges uh, they were a group of judges you know the divine counsel is exactly the same thing we see in psalm 82 um that's exactly what they were condemned for uh not doing well they, they didn't do their job well um i'm trying to pull that up here so i can give you an example but that's one of the most consistent things in the sumerian texts you find about this group of anunnaki is that they are um they are judges, and one of the papers I read that Heiser has produced or produced uh, three translations of some German papers about the Anunnaki and his main point about them is that uh, just as these gods didn't uh, judge correctly, and some of them were later condemned to the underworld uh, and as they correspond with the sons of God, which we 'll see here in a minute that that sinned or some of them that did sin, some of them didn't in the later texts. That it was, and, and scholars have a difficult time with this because it seems as though they still refer to the Anunnaki, but the, but there's another group that comes up called the Igil or something like that. That they have a hard time sort of categorizing because they're obviously still Anunnaki, but yet they're in the underworld. And it's like a certain number of them were always from that point on, always in the underworld. Anyway, Psalm eighty-two is a short psalm that says, "God stands in the congregation of the mighty; he judges among the gods." How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Um, This is not by any means the only kind of uh, divine counsel language in the Bible. Uh, For example... There, they, the another interesting characteristic is the the Sumerian text always talks about the Anunnaki who are around at creation. That's a big part of the Anunnaki is that they were with God during the creation of the world, and of course we have in the Bible the same basic thing. You know, oh, like in Job, the morning stars who sing together when He laid the foundations of the earth. The, I mean, even basic theology, recognize that he's talking about the angels that were there in crea- in, during the creation. And the divine counselor are basically angels. I mean, that's, that's okay to say that. We, they correspond to what, what we would say in Genesis 6, the sons of God uh, you know, found the women of the earth fair. They, they disrobed from whatever that was, the state they were in, in order to, to mate with human women. And those sons of God that sinned were imprisoned. But their offspring, the nephilim, remained. So there's a massive distinction between the offspring of these individuals and the uh, and the ir- original progenitors there. Um, and you'll forgive me; I'm uh, also burning DVDs for the Christianity 101 DVD at the moment. So I just lost my train of thought and looking to. Okay, so um, what was I gonna say about? Let's go through some of these some of these things that they say. Oh yeah, here's an interesting thing. The name, the those who from heaven to earth came. This is interesting in light of the connection between the Anunnaki and the and the sons of God. And again, remember what I'm what, what, what the premise is here, the ancient world knew God, and though they knew, knew him and they chose not to worship him as God, just like Romans 1 says. And they really did know them. You see this in the Bible. I did that, uh, that video called, What About Those Who Have Never Heard? And I made, made that point strongly that the world seemed to really know about God in a different way. I mean, how did these ancient people before uh, Moses you know, and before uh, Abraham, they all seemed to kind of understand about God, knew, knew some interesting facts about God and, and, and about creation and about all, a lot of things. And I think that's because if they did all descend from Noah and Noah's uh, family, of course they would have carried a lot of that stuff with them. And but then begs the question: Well, where did what did Noah know? You know, Noah learned from you know his grandfather Enoch. What did Enoch know? You know, there was something serious always going on with that. But anyway, so the name of the Anunnaki, the Anunnua, and uh, is is interesting in terms of etymology. What does the word mean? It certainly doesn't mean those from heaven to earth came here's some interesting things from these papers one person says that uh, they are the gods or seeds or semen from the first or the gods of the great father now that that they're having some trouble with that translation they they think that maybe father there is is kind of hard to to make happen um that was in a, a paper called Die una in der samarian uber or something or whatever anyway the second one says that it's uh, the gods of the princely seed. So you can see seed being an important part of this. Uh, the third and third paper says, a lone, a lone word from the Sumerian and goes back to the genitive with the Anunnak or princely seed, or princely blood. Okay, you can see clearly the sons of God or it is being a very interesting connection here. The sons of God in the Old Testament, basic theology, would say that that's angelic. I know that there are some that would uh, disagree with that, but I think most of the people listening here are firmly convinced that they're not talking about this, the sons of Seth when they say that, or, or mainly whatever issue. But what's interesting about that is the concept was so strong, even represented by their name, you know, the, the princely seed, right? Uh, the sons of... Sons of the most high you know is is a uh, or god or princely seed or whatever you want to i don 't know nobody really knows exactly what what it means, but you can get get an idea what it 's saying there but that that 's their name, and what 's interesting about that is that 's also like the primary characteristic about it now that 's where they say in this in the ancient aliens thing they 're like let me see this is what it says this is what the, the the guy actually says, it says word for word that these beings descended in flying vehicles. That is so stupid. It does not in any way, shape, or form say that these things descended from flying vehicles. They make the whole point in this in the ancient aliens that these things are always talking about coming from heaven, and they come down from heaven, and that's what their name is, those who from heaven to earth came. But here, listen to where they're probably getting this idea and you can judge for yourself what the focus of this uh, is. Um, for for once, uh, as the An in the mountains, keep in mind, An is is the god, uh, is god the who later in the Akkadian text was Marduk, the the great the god over everything, the god who created the other gods, the god who created the Anunnaki, and it says, um, as An in the mountains. From heaven and earth, the an- the Anunnaki gods conceived. So he conceived the Anunnaki in heaven. Okay, so it refers to the Anunnaki in relation to their conception in heaven by God. Another another thing it says, to them went the an- Anunnua, the gods whom, whom An conceived in the sky. Another reference of it, it's almost like an addendum when it mentions the, the Anunnaki, the gods whom unconceived in the sky. So their reference to the sky, you know, who which ancient aliens want you to believe, that every time it talks about the Anunnaki, it's talking about them coming from the sky. That's not the focus of what it says at all. The only reason it mentions the sky is because it's referring to their conception by God as their name suggests also. The, prince, uh, the princely seed, those who were seeded by God, those who were created by God, the sons of God, as the Bible calls them. And then another time it says they that they whom from on in the sky and on earth were conceived here it talks about their their conception also uh, being on earth that's another thing that's mentioned in other places so but again it's it's referring to them the addendum to their name which means uh, the sons of God basically or princely seed if you want uh, and they were conceived on on you know by on so it's interesting that of course they would leave that out that the that's the main Characteristic and and if you're any of you are having trouble with the idea of the divine council and me in me comparing them to the um, I, I want you to look into Mike Heiser's he did his dissertation in, in about this uh, and I think I heard him in an interview say one time you know this sounds like um, it sounds like not orthodox theology. And it, and when all the talking about it kind of sounds not orthodox, but it is extremely orthodox. You end up the same place theologically you you were when you started, and this goes back, of course, to the their connection to the creation of man. They played a role of some sort, even if they just sat by and watched. It's the same way that they did in the Sumerian story, but they were there, and that's what the, I would say almost the primary thing about the ancient aliens, Zachary Sitchin, and, uh, and Von Daniken, pretty much all center around the, the biblical text that says something like, let us go down and make man in our image. Now, first of all, the idea of Elohim does not always mean plural. It can mean plural or singular. It, it, it's, it's dependent upon the context Much like the word sheep in English is dependent upon the context. The sheep are lost. The sheep is lost. It depends on if you're saying are or is as to whether sheep is singular or plural. Elohim, if you want to think of it like that, is exactly the same situation. The problem is, is that a few times the context demands that Elohim is plural. Elohim does not mean God in the same. That's why we say God, small g, God, big g. It doesn't really mean what we think it means in the Hebrew and oftentimes refers to um angels elohim and here it certainly does but it says let us go down and make man in our image the interesting thing about that is that i know a lot of people say that's the trinity and that's that's sort of a easy out when somebody's like presenting that to you um but it won't work consistently and it comes as heiser points out if you try to sort of do the math on that, and you take that consistently, and take all the passages that refer to that, and do all that stuff, then eventually you come to some contradictions that demand that these things are angels, just like the suns, you know, the the, the as it says the this, the morning stars that sing together when the earth was created, and everything else like that. They were they were there. They were there, and they are this just group of, of, I would say, higher ranking angels than the normal angels. They certainly were created by God. They, had no, they have no life in themselves to, to give. They were created beings that worshipped God, which is no different than any other angel. So it's just a different kind of ranking angel. We shouldn't have a problem with that. We see cherubim and we see you know, the, the different rankings of angels um, to a certain extent the archangel and so, so on in the Bible that we, we shouldn't have too big of a hang up with these kinds of things. Um, but, uh, the creation, uh, story in the Sumerian text is also, again, playing on, on this basic thing that the, the ancient world knew this stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't shocking for the ancient world to know about the creation of the world. One thing I always think about with this is in Ezekiel's wheel, um, Ezekiel's wheel is talking about the throne of God and that there are four cherubim around the throne of God and that there are wheels on the bottom of the, the throne and it's, it's pictured. I mean, you can draw it out in, uh, in with Ezekiel. It's certainly not a UFO and the wheel within a wheel is talking about wheels, um, not, uh, not a spaceship. And and of course they, they, they pretend they didn't hear about 90% of what, what is actually in Ezekiel. Um, But What's interesting about that, and Heiser does this in his uh, in his Ezekiel's heavenly throne vision video. He brings out a lot of pictures that I didn't quite understand at the time um, what 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 it meant. But he was bringing out a lot of pictures of the ancient world, drawing pictures of thrones. Like, and it was always similar. Like these ancient, super ancient cultures depicted thrones um, with cherubim on it, four faces and wings, uh, wheels. And all this sort of stuff, and, and, and it, and and I know this 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 trips out a lot of people. Um, I, I put a video, and uh, I uh, put it put it on the Revelations Radio Network recently of uh, a, a presentation that Heiser did about this, and people were kind of not getting it, I think, because they were, they thought that he was saying, you know, that 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 the, the Bible got this stuff from the ancient world. The ancient world, you know, drew pictures of thrones like this, and then Ezekiel was just copying some pagan thing that That's what I think people thought he was saying, and what I'm trying to tell you is it's a little more complicated than that, but it's you know nothing different not, i mean it's just more validation of the Bible but it, you have to take this one thing into account that the ancient world did know stuff like that, the ancient world did know somehow the what the throne of God actually looked like, whether that was passed down from people like Enoch, who was, you know, Noah's grandfather or whatever, who obviously walked with God. I don't know what that means exactly, but there was there was clearly a more intimate kind of um, back and forth with God and people, and I think revelation of God was uh, pretty significant. Um, so anyways, I, I just want to to point that out, and I want to move on a little bit, I guess, here to some other things that were said. Um, you know, one thing that they say a lot here is this idea of the flying vehicle, and they show the, the solar disk, uh, mostly they're showing the, the Akkadian solar disk because the Sumerian much earlier solar disk doesn't look at all, doesn't, it's not winged or whatever, but the, um, the one later on, the Akkadian one has wings, and later, of course, the Egyptians would, de- uh, develop a similar, uh, picture of the sun and stuff like that, and, you know, uh, they 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 constantly say the Sumerian were were hovering over people and they were landing and they really really need this to be a spaceship, but the problem is and the way I think I'll approach this is that you can look at how this is depicted. I've got this great picture here of that that uh, same solar disk being and the same stone being put next to the moon. I mean it's clearly what they believe the the sun was and their their writings um talk about that it talks about how um let's see here gilgamesh is an interesting thing uh when gilgamesh went to enkidu um to slay humbaba each morning they prayed to make uh, libation to samash which was the sun god in the direction of the rising sun for safe travel so that shows you that they, they thought it that the God was the sun, you know? That, that it's not as if the sun God ever landed and, like, a dude came out and taught him to mine gold. You, you know, that's what they th- are telling people are in these texts. And you can go, and what I've been doing is going through and looking of every instance that the Sumerians ever talked about, because we can do that now. We don't have to take Sitchin's word for it or whatever. We have, you know, hundreds of years of people of cataloging this stuff so I can type in the word gold and see all the the references of gold in you know almost the entire corpse of the of the Sumerian literature. And there is nothing even close to an idea about that. And they mention gold and golden things or whatever, but there's no there's no seriousness about gold. There's no mining of gold. There's no anything even remotely close to what's being said. I was I was fascinated by what uh, Sitchin did to even make mining a uh, a, a thing. Because, I mean, if you know Sitchin, I mean, he says that they came to earth to mine gold. And I went back and I looked at um, what he said about this, because obviously he had to somehow make this, after seeing that they didn't clearly, I mean, I looked at every reference of gold in the Sumerian texts, and there's not even a hint that they cared, uh, uh, like, in any way about gold or did anything like gold about with gold that they were talking about. He says, um, quote, from the Twelfth Planet, Some Mesopotamian hymns to Ea exalt him as Bel-Nimki, translated as Lord of Wisdom. But the correct translation should undoubtedly be Lord of Mining. Just as the Tablet of Destinies at Nippur contained uh, orbital data, it follows that entrusted to Nigel at Irigeshigal was, in fact, a tablet of mining, a data bank pertaining to mining operations of the Nephilim. Which, of course, he's saying that the Anunnaki are the same thing as the Nephilim, which is completely ridiculous, and even his etymology of the word Nephilim is wrong. It actually means giants not to fall, as Heiser points out so well. Um, But the point is, it's all based on just him saying, but the correct translation should undoubtedly be... And he just tells us what the correct translation is. He doesn't give us any reason why the other translation was wrong or you know, there's no indication of that whatsoever. And the problem of course is that the Sumerians wrote dictionaries. And we have Akkadian Sumerian bilingual dictionaries where they tell us what the words mean. And they explain what the word means, and if wisdom meant mining, then it would just say this word means us digging out, you know, gold from the hills because we need it for our atmosphere or all these other things. And and if you read Sitchin about this this stuff about they needed gold for their atmosphere, it's completely entirely speculation on his part. He's like, gold is really a good good material and can be used for many things, and why not atmosphere? And he goes through a little bit more rigmarole in order to come there, but it's basically as you would expect ridiculous um they say the adamu was created by um uh, the primitive worker was was named adamu which of course they want this is what they say that the they genetically modified the first man and his name was adamu and of course the ancient alien series puts plays that up a lot you know adam adamu you know and it makes this big 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 deal about that problem of course is that adamu doesn't mean man at all it means red or blood uh, the color red. You can see the dictionary. I'll put that uh, in the in the video. The word "man" in Sumerian is not "adamu" at all. It is um, the word is awil, "awilu" or something like that. And Sitchin actually notes this. Um, let's see. So, but Heiser in a paper writes that as well. But you know, the, the the at the end of the day, I don't want to sell it too strongly because there was a connection between what was happening with the creation of this this uh, this um, man and how it mixed it with the gods to create him. Now, now, keep in mind, this is where we get into they actually messed the story up, just like the cube and the flood story, and they got a lot of stuff wrong. We start to see the Sumerians kind of have what the New Age does to the Genesis 3 account of the fall of man. Like the New Age kind of makes... You know, twists it to make uh, their sort of sinful desires make, you know, the, the quest for knowledge very Gnostic. And man, I'll tell you what, one thing is absolutely clear that the Ancient Alien series is so seriously Gnostic in that way. I mean, they have entire episodes, and it's, you know, once every other episode, they try to say, you know, in the Garden of Eden, what that actually represents is aliens, and you know, one of the alien races really wanted us to just, uh, they wanted us to be smart, and they wanted to give us knowledge, but there was an evil, bad alien race that didn't want us to do, and they didn't want us to have the Tree of Life, which is the DNA, which is being smart, and so they basically made uh, Satan the good guy, and... There, i mean i've got some clips of that just make your jaw drop from ancient aliens that is just saying just like the new age and everybody else does satan is really you know he's the good alien he's our good god he just wanted us to be smart and you know the other god is evil and bad alien and we hate him and of course they don't say it exactly like that but you get the idea and that's kind of what you sort of have here with this uh with this creation story. But but the elements are too clear to disregard, too. It's clearly the same story, just like their flood story is clearly the same story. Uh, You got boat, you got a boat, you got judgment, you got uh, animals, you got two people, or rather you got eight people in the ark and all this other stuff. It's clearly the same story, but there are these elements. And one of these elements here starts to reveal itself. And you can see that just the same problem that Romans 1 talks about. Though they knew God, they worshipped him not as God. And the same the same problem with Babel is that they went after these other gods. And that is really the story of what begins to develop, especially in the Ak- Akkadian world, is they start to make cults and they start to worship these other gods. Now, as I said, the, the, the Anunnaki are never really worshipped. They're always kind of like just judges, they're just, they were there, you know, so a lot of the qualities we've already mentioned, but they were never worshipped, they were never turned into uh, cult worships. There were always about five, six, seven other gods that had that category of worship. And it's interesting when you see the difference of how, like, a particular temple or a particular writing that was made by a priest of a particular god will always, like, exalt that god over the Anunnaki. Not not as though he created him, but he's, like, all of a sudden the ruler of the Anunnaki and that's what seems to happen per cult is they, they take their favorite God and they make them like the ruler of or you know, subservient or the Anunnaki is subservient to him uh, all of a sudden, but never makes them created him. I mean, Marduk in that case would always always have created him, but you know what I'm saying? That they always sort of just, they're never, they're always sort of this, this class of kind of flunkies, but, uh, what, what I'm trying to say is that in Romans 1 and everything else, they went after these other gods and they worshipped other gods. And because of their worship of other gods, it started to really skew the true details that they had about this. And so from one cult to another, the story about this creation or the story of different things would be different to a degree. Okay. I think I've uh, kind of said my piece on that issue. There's so many other things to talk about. And we've got, uh, let's see, we've got some time here. I want to talk about some of the other things that uh, have been found out. I'm going to hit them briefly um for example the let's see where should we go We talked last time about the Nazca lines and how they said how could this you know mountaintop be shaved off and it was actually a mesa a uh, natural occurring phenomenon that was pretty funny the let's see here we got some stuff in Ivan did a really good job with the I don't know. If, well, any of you will know about this if you're semi-familiar with it, but these things called the um, the Egyptian light bulb, they call them. They have these pictures of what looks like a really big vacuum tube, uh, like an old-school you know, vacuum tube or a light bulb, and it's got this sort of element that goes through the middle of it. And it's in this one particular tomb, and they say it's a light bulb. And they say, well, they need a light bulb because, you know, you can't have fire in the tomb and... And the the hair guy said, I tried to light my Zippo in the tomb and it went straight out. So how did they light it? And there's no soot on the ceiling, so that just proves that they didn't use lamps. They must have used light bulbs. That's the logic of ancient aliens is that um, that must have used light bulbs because they couldn't have used fire. The absence of able to use fire necessitates the use of light bulbs. Right. So anyway, these pictures... I even uh, did a really good job of doing research on that, and found a lot of different things. One of them is that it's it's this pretty standard understanding of the uh, of telling the story of Horus, uh, and a birth. Of Horus in in this snake form. So what at the very bottom of this so-called light bulb is a lotus flower, and they mention that actually in the in the thing they say mainstream Egyptologist believes it's a lotus flower, but it, we know it's not. We know it's really a light bulb, and it clearly is a lotus flower. But what they don't mention is that the thing that looks like an element, which they want to make, you know, what's inside the light bulb, is clearly a snake, and it's got eyes, and you know, it's it's a snake, and it is representing a well-known story of the birth of Horus in a the form of a snake which is common apparently in this kind of uh that he manifests in lots of different you know ways depending on the story and apparently in this story is the birth of a snake from a lotus flower is Horus and so it's a well-known story and it's not referring to a light bulb it would be one thing if they had a picture of these light bulbs and it said this is how we light the pyramids because the fires you know don't work and Ivan also points out that they used um they used olive oil which is a clean burning fuel for their lamps and uh and he's got w- there's a paper that he referenced that shows that that mentions that they are there are uh you know glyphs of them using these lamps so we're looking for the for the uh images of that it would be a pretty good nail in the coffin just to sh- to juxtapose to him saying you can't use fire in the tombs because whatever and then they like discredit it by trying to discredit this obvious problem of using these mirrors a really kind of failed theory and they say well look can't use mirrors must use light bulbs um but that's sort of a uh um let's see we've got all kinds of stuff that's going on here with that I suppose I will just call it a day with this kind of stuff for now, and we are really, really excited about this project, and we really do hope that it it is a really fruitful project. Um, Real briefly, I will talk about some of the things with Africa that's getting really close, and I'm getting almost to the point where I'm not completely, totally freaking out every second of the day, thinking I don't have enough time, not quite there yet. Uh, but, uh, I've kind of been able to put it all in in perspective and, and, and be really good about writing down what needs to be done, um, yet. And I'll just go through some of the projects that, that I'm doing. First is the teaching stuff. There's a lot of teaching stuff going on. I mentioned the two conferences, one in Kenya, one in Uganda, three days each. And in the middle there, I'll be teaching at a Bible college in a place, uh, just north of the city that I'll be staying at for the most part. So that's almost done. Um, just finished the final thing I wanted to write as far as this, I'm also preaching the there's a, a the sermon uh the Sunday sermon after the conference. so I've just finished that. I think I'm done writing teaching stuff, and done researching for that, so that's kind of a big weight. I've still got one more small thing to write for the orphans uh, when I talk to them uh the orphan ministry stuff i'm going to be just going to a few different orphanages before I go to the main uh orphan orphanage, if you can call it that. Uh, While we were spending the last month uh, in Africa at. And almost completely finished with the projects I wanted to do for the orphans. Including uh, getting a few. There's one Swahili animation. There's only one animation that I know of in Swahili. Um, in this Christian animation. First, first one ever done by this group called uh, Pomoja ministries, uh, educate, educating through discipleship, and I was really excited to see that they produced, they only have one right now, but it's a, a really well done animation, and so I've got this little mini projector that is on the just cutting edge of technology. It uses LED lights, which makes it uh, less expensive, which makes it not have to use bulbs, which means it doesn't get hot, which means it can have a longer battery life. About an hour I've found of battery life that it'll give us, um, and I've been using... If you've seen those little iHome speakers, which are also rechargeable USB rechargeable speakers, that are really tiny, tiny speakers that are really portable, but they can give a big sound. So I have like, and, and the the projector is like, I mean, like so small, uh, you can fit it in your shirt pocket, but it does it does so many things, and it was it, I mean, it was really, really, really a, a good deal. So that's that's part of what I'm going to be doing for the orphanage thing but really and i'm going to be using it for that and and showing them movies and stuff i've got the jesus film and 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 all the eastern um dialects and whatnot but but the real reason i have the the projector is to work with is to give it to the people that i'll be working with the with the environmental stuff i really am starting the more i research what's going on with like victoria the fish are going to be out of there by 2014 or 2014 it's it's a it's the the precipice of a major environmental disaster. And I don't see any, you couldn't throw enough money at this to fix it. The only possible solution to this problem is uh, quickly educating people around the area on a number of things, uh, including things like uh, overfishing and, and pollution and uh, worldview issues. Obviously, it's an evangelist. I mean, they're very Christian and very dedicated to that uh, ministry, but there's so many things, including... Uh, but the practical solutions that they have, the, the multi-level gardening and the solar stoves and this, the, the, they actually are, are doing something that can can help these people sustain and not die out because right now, the because of the population and everything there and because they're about to lose the, the only source of economy in the area, which is the fish in Lake Victoria, already people are fighting over the fish. They're having to... Uh, prostitute themselves to get the fish from the fishermen because they're so rare uh, and that's making the AIDS epidemic go crazy it's one of the the most uh, right there is the percentages of of the people that have AIDS are just astronomical so different education so anyway there's so many things that they do I can't even name them but what we're going to do is I'm going to produce short 10 some odd minute uh, videos in Swahili uh, and then not only we're going to produce those but we're going to give them the ability to take this this uh you know projector and um and the the speakers and take them to the islands and have a a screening of this to show lots and lots of people at the same time which helps their ministry not have to be so um tied down to uh where they are and it does great things i could talk all day about what they're doing and i'll be spending as i mentioned about the last month in kenya working on that project um, let's see what else is going on. Uh, video projects galore. I've got a million different things I could do videos about. And, I don't, and I'm don't. i trying to think too much about it because I could do documentaries on the, Ken- the Kenyan church, the pastors there. I'm going to have so many opportunities to talk to Kenyan pastors. And I don't know h- what that would look like as far as a documentary or whatnot. Um, so I've got all kinds of different things like that that I, that I could do for film projects. I'm trying not to stress myself out about thinking too much about that uh, because... I feel like if I, I... I don't know. I'll talk about that maybe some other time. Anyway, uh, the cell phone projects I've talked a lot about. Almost done. I hope to get back from the... from the uh, uh, um, I guess I would call him a programmer. Um, finally finished up my part as far as the treasury scripture knowledge. Ivan also helped a lot with that. We have gotten all this sort of raw data of the digitized treasury scripture knowledge in the format that's needed to basically convert that to a cell phone... Um, Uh, um, concordance and that it should be done pretty soon the bibles are also the the cell phone bibles also physical bibles i think we ended up ordering um i can't remember i think it was like 250 ended up being the final number ultimately of of bibles um and thanks that actually really awesome things somebody donated uh Enough money to buy those Bibles, like I, that was the the expense I was kind of most freaking out about because it ended up being um, i don 't think it was like seven dollars a Bible or something like that, but whatever it was it was the day I needed the money was the day I got the donation for those Bibles so thank you to the person who donated uh, for those Bibles. It was just so awesome to to need it and then have it provided the very day at the very deadline and um, just praise the Lord for that and thank you for your help with that sincerely Um, and um, as far as the distribution of all this stuff via cell phones this is going to be a lot harder than I thought I mean with the Bluetooth distribution method it's going to really help a certain percentage of people are their phones are gonna be able to receive it through that method but the phones I've been testing and testing old phones and I'm just like it's gonna be a very very serious process of me working with each individual phone to get whatever I can on the phone in every, any way I can because every phone is completely different. So I'm going to be really learning a lot about phones. I have been learning a lot about uh, cell phones. Um, and I've got all kinds of little gadgets and, and stuff and, and cords and stuff that I hope will help me get whatever I can on the phones. If they have SD cards, I have, uh, I've got a really good deal on micro SD cards so I can put a audio Bible on their phone and whatever... Uh, you know, dialect that they speak on. So I've got, I've got some plans for cell phones. I really want to just empower them in terms of the one piece of media player that they have. I want to make it work for them. But there was a certain amount of people that it's just not going to work. I had, I've had to come to that conclusion that a certain amount of phones, no matter if they even have a phone, I simply can't make it work. So I had to try to think about what I was going to do for those people. And I actually ripped out the New Testament of of the Treasure of Scripture knowledge in my, the book that I own of it. And I made front and back, side-by-side copies of it so I could get it down to a really, really thin, you know, a stack of papers and, in really small print. And I made a Swahili uh, cover letter of it so they can sort of say, if this reference for the Bible corresponds to this Swahili uh, reference. So they only need one cover page to translate the whole, entire document because it's just references. And... But, but then I ran into a problems of printing. I mean, I, it, printing it here was it was going to be extremely expensive at Kinko's, not to mention then trying to mail it down because, I mean, I couldn't carry it on the plane. It was way over the weight limit just to make 25 copies. I ended up having to make 50 um, just to try to make sure I had enough. But uh, stroke of uh, of luck, I, I talked to the guy there, and one of the, the people that go to his church is a printer in Eldorette, so I only had to mail them. One, uh stack of papers to 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 them and then they he and it was extremely cheap to print them in eldoret and obviously no no uh no shipping so that ended up saving a whole lot of uh, money there cell phones that's done uh also equipping um chris the pastor there with a few uh things that i think will really help him um some some ways to sort of produce what he's doing they, they the um They have a, as I mentioned, a uh, a Bible school that he's running there. Um, And they have like one concordance. I mean, one Strong's concordance at the Bible school. So what I did was I got a Kindle um, and I just started loading it up with theological stuff anything that i could find in swahili which wasn't very much but a lot of them speak english too so i was able to get concordances and lexicons and all kinds of stuff that's all you know copyright free so it didn't so i i mean i i've got them this massive library on this little uh, uh thing and, and the battery lasts forever and ever and ever there uh so so that's cool i've got a little solar powered uh charger for it too so but, um, so I, I can go on and talk about that all day. There's all kinds of logistical stuff that's going on too. Hope that all works out. I've got to go talk to a, a doctor here about malarial drugs and stuff like that, or anti-malarial drugs. The place that I'm going is like world-renowned malaria, the place, I, I think actually around Lake Victoria where I'm going in um, Mobita is where I'll be spending a lot of time. That It's it's like world-renowned malaria place like year-round super malaria and a lot of people die from it Um, even I mean a lot of kids die from it and a lot of white people die from it because they're really never been exposed to it because eventually you you do kind of develop a a resistance to it but obviously I haven't had that opportunity so I have to take some anti-malarial drugs and I'll be there for a long time so I've got to find ones that can be taken for a long time and there are some crazy anti malarial drugs like Malarone and uh what's the other one that everybody uh, Lara L- V not Lara V is it a guitar um there's another one that's like I mean people do crazy stuff on these uh, anti malarial drugs like weird demonic like stuff happens I'm sure that many of you that have taken it like are nodding your head right now but i've read some stories that just blow me away it's like it's like listening to yeah it's just crazy stuff so anyway um i guess i'll just end it i'm right at an hour or close to it and um thanks to everybody for listening to the show and being patient with me for not getting shows out on a regular basis uh, i assure you i am uh um thinking about you and trying to only do the shows when i have something to say and uh Keep listening to the Revelations Radio Network. I'll try to keep that more updated. I really want to get more good, um, solid preaching out on the Revelations Radio Network. I just put out a really great sermon that apparently a lot of people know about that I've never heard about myself. But if you haven't heard it, it's called Ten Shekels in a Shirt by Paris Reedhead. And it says it could be called one of the most influential sermons of the 20th century. And if you haven't heard it, check it out. And I want to try to do a lot more of that stuff. By the way, it kind of starts off slow. You're like, okay, when are we going to get to it? So just give it some time. Anyways, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to everybody later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.